Welcome to Then and Now with Ed Stevens, President of the International Preterist Association. Then and Now is a weekly podcast designed to explore past fulfillment of Bible prophecy in order to equip us for guiding the church in its ongoing reform. And now, with today's message, here's Ed Stevens. Welcome to another edition of Then and Now podcast where we study the Bible and history from a full preterist perspective. Last time, we looked at more of the efforts of Vespasian and his Roman legions to finish cleaning out all the pockets of rebellion and resistance left in the two sections of Galilee, as well as the Decapolis, Perea, Samaria, Idumea, Jericho, and the other parts of Judea which were outside of Jerusalem. This time, we will continue looking at the chronology of the war, including more details about Vespasian's rise to power and the continuation of military operations in Judea by his son Titus. We will also look at what was going on inside Jerusalem among the various zealot factions as they struggled for supremacy over their rival rebel leaders. Let's pray before we get into all that. Infinite, eternal, immortal, omnipotent, omniscient, and only God of the universe. As we study the history of your sovereign work on behalf of your people, may your Holy Spirit illumine our hearts and our minds to understand your truth and apply it to our lives in such a way that we produce good spiritual fruit, that you build your kingdom and bring glory and honor to you and your Son, who willingly died in our place. It is in his holy and eternally blessed name that we pray. Amen. Well, I have here in the outline a summary of the events that we looked at last session, and there's quite a number of them. We're not going to go through that list, but I wanted to put it in here at the beginning so that those of you who may not have heard last session can briefly review those and get caught up and get back up to speed where we need to be to start this session. You'll notice at the end of that list of those events that we covered last time, it mentions in June of 69 that Vespasian recovered Simon's territory that was now left undefended after he went into Jerusalem to help the moderates there overcome John of Giscala and his forces. Also, we noted that in July the 30th of 69 AD is when Vespasian was hailed as the next emperor of Rome by his troops there in Judea as well as Alexandria in Egypt, a little over a year after Nero had been killed. Then Vespasian starts making preparations to go to Rome and settle the affairs there and begin his rule as emperor, but he didn't actually get proclaimed emperor in Rome by the Senate there until December of 69. So there's a little bit of lag time there between his troops calling him emperor and the people of Rome finally declaring him emperor. And so we're going to look at what was happening in Jerusalem with the zealots during all this time that Vespasian was trying to get things settled down where he could go to Rome and begin to rule there. And next time in our session, we'll try to deal with some of those events that occurred between July of 69 and December of 69 when um, Vespasian was preparing to go to Rome. 
So this time I want to start right in that area of the late fall of 67, early winter of 68, and talk about what was happening in Jerusalem with the zealots while Vespasian was doing all this activity outside of Jerusalem. So here in the late fall and early winter of 68, after capturing all the strongholds in Galilee and pushing all resistance and rebels toward Jerusalem, Vespasian was now in a position to move into Judea. Most of his military advisors urged him to surround Jerusalem immediately and begin the assault. However, he heard from Jewish deserters that the rebel factions in Jerusalem were very much divided against each other in their struggle for supremacy. Vespasian knew that raising the siege at that time would only force them to unite at a time when they were still strong and well supplied. Vespasian rightly decided to let that internecine strife continue so as to weaken the zealots as much as possible and make the Roman job of storming Jerusalem later much easier. Well, he was right to do that because that's exactly what happened. In the spring of 68, more Jewish deserters came and told Vespasian that the situation in Jerusalem was worsening and that a lot of the Jewish people who wanted peace with Rome were being killed in Jerusalem by the Zealot factions. They urged Vespasian to capture Jerusalem and rescue the pro-Roman people who were there. However, Vespasian opted to first clear out more of the rebel resistance in Perea, Judea, and Idumea before he surrounded Jerusalem. And so, in June of 68, Vespasian took his forces from Emmaus to Samaria, where he captured a couple of cities there, Neapolis and Korea, and then on to Jericho, where he captured that and took out all the inhabitants and left a garrison there. And then he sent Lucius Annius to capture Gerasa, which was over in the southern part of the Decapolis. Jerusalem was now very effectively cut off from the outside world. No supplies or troops could come into or go out of Jerusalem without being intercepted by the Romans. Now Vespasian is ready to siege Jerusalem. He regrouped his forces at Caesarea while he planned that attack. However, before he could execute those plans, news from Rome about the death of Nero arrived. Nero died on June the 9th of 68. Vespasian immediately put a hold on all plans to siege Jerusalem while he waited for new orders from the new emperor Galba. But weeks stretched into several months without any word from Galba. So Vespasian finally, in December of 68, quit waiting for new orders to arrive and sent Agrippa and Titus by boat to greet Galba and personally obtain the new orders. Well, it was about this time also that Simon ben Giora had left Masada at the time the Zealots had gained control of Jerusalem through the help of the Idumeans. Upon hearing of the death of Ananus II, his old enemy, and the Zealot victory over the forces of Ananus, he left Masada with his troops and eventually went back to Acrobatine to proclaim liberty to the slaves and rewards for the free. 
course, he had been kicked out of Acrobatine by Ananus. So after Ananus was killed by the Idumeans, uh, he felt like he was free to go back to Acrobatine, and that's what he did. He gained many new followers along the way, including many of the newly released prisoners from Jerusalem. He took control of Acrobatine and many areas of southern Judea. He established his headquarters at Nain and stored up supplies in the caves at Ferrate so that he could eventually attack Jerusalem. In the process of raiding the villages of Judea and gathering supplies, he encountered the Zealot forces from Jerusalem who were also raiding Judean villages to gather supplies while Vespasian was waiting in Caesarea for new orders. There were clashes between the two Zealot forces. Simon then tricked the Idumeans into letting him come into Idumea. While he was there, he seized control of Hebron and raided their villages. Many refugees from Idumea went to Jerusalem as a result. The Zealots then came out of Jerusalem and captured Simon's wife and took her back to Jerusalem. Simon then marched to Jerusalem and vowed to wreak havoc upon them unless they returned his wife. Evidently, they took his threats very seriously and released his wife back to him. All of this was happening in the background while Vespasian was waiting in Caesarea for new orders to come from the new emperor. Well, in the winter of 69, we're going to skip ahead a little bit here now and talk about what's happening in Jerusalem while Vespasian is still waiting for orders to come from the new emperor. The Zealots saw all this confusion and delay and leadership struggles that were going on in Rome as a sign from God that victory was going to be theirs. The Roman emperor Nero was dead. A clear and settled successor was not in place. Several western nations of the empire were on the edge of revolt. The city of Rome itself was plunged into civil strife. It appeared that their time of freedom and independence had arrived. Consequently, they did not use the time wisely to prepare for the coming siege. They thought victory was virtually assured, and they were already thinking about who would be in control of the new independent Judean state. During the winter and early spring of AD 69, the Zealot factions in Jerusalem struggled against each other for supremacy. Each of the faction leaders wanted to be on top when they overthrew the Romans, or when the Romans left and went back to Rome to settle their own affairs. That's what they thought was going to happen. They didn't think they would ever have to fight Vespasian. They thought he would go back to Rome and settle affairs under a new emperor and leave them alone. So they didn't bother to use the time wisely and prepare for the coming siege of Jerusalem. Each of the faction leaders wanted to be at the top, so they weakened themselves by dividing against each other at the very time when they should have united and prepared for the desperate struggle that was about to come. John of Giscala used the winter to gain control of most of the zealot forces in Jerusalem and was allied with Eliezer ben Ananias, somewhat, whose forces controlled the inner temple. John controlled the rest of the city, mostly, except for what the moderates were able to keep under their control. His soldiers dressed themselves up 
as women and behaved like prostitutes and sodomites. And this is what we looked at a little bit last time, talked about some of that in Josephus's account. Josephus, of course, was enraged at this when he found out about it and talks about it as being a tremendous abomination and a violation of biblical law. Of course, Deuteronomy 22, verse 5, forbids this kind of conduct and activity and condemns it as worthy of death, calls it an abomination. The zealots prove themselves to be totally lawless, especially John of Giscala and his band of zealots. So here we see in the spring of 69 AD, lawlessness is increased. The sad thing about all this lawless conduct of the zealots was that it was not just against Roman law, but against God's law and against God's people. The zealot factions and robber bands committed lawless acts of plunder and harassment against their own Jewish people, especially against anyone who would not support the war effort. Josephus says that robbers, sicarii, zealots, seditious factions, and even the high priest kept laws only selectively, if at all. Both civil laws and religious laws were trampled underfoot by the zealots in their attempt to throw off the Roman yoke. Notice what Josephus says about the lawless conduct of the zealots in subverting their own laws in comparison to the Romans who had tried to protect their rights to practice those laws. Josephus says, Besides, can anyone be afraid of a war abroad, and that with such as will have comparatively much greater moderation than our own people have? For truly, if we may suit our words to the things they represent, it is probable one may hereafter find the Romans to be the supporters of our laws and those within ourselves the subverters of them. Well, that was a pretty strong condemnation of the zealots inside the city of Jerusalem. The Idumeans who were inside Jerusalem despised John of Giscala, probably because of his breaking the law and his abominable conduct. That certainly would not have made the Idumeans feel much better about defending Jerusalem and helping them gain their independence when they saw that kind of ungodly, wretched conduct and lawless conduct. And so they banded together against John of Giscala and tried to isolate him in the palace and in the outer temple. They seized some of his food supplies, but the rest of the zealots came to the aid of John. Simon ben Giora was then brought in to save them from John of Giscala. The chief priest, along with Matthias the high priest, and the powerful moderates allied themselves with the Idumeans in the attempt to overthrow John. They decided to invite Simon ben Giora into the city to save them from John of Giscala, not realizing that Simon was just as corrupt as John. Matthias was killed later, uh, a year later, during the siege, even though he was the one who helped bring Simon ben Giora into the city here in the spring of 69. After Simon came into the city, he gained control of the zealot supplies and surrounded John's forces at the temple. But John's forces were able to repulse Simon's forces and retain control of the outer temple area. Eliezer ben Ananias, who was still somewhat allied with John, held the inner temple court 
where the bulk of the temple treasure was located. This internecine struggle between Simon and John for supremacy only weakened their defenses and fragmented their morale and made it easier for the Romans to conquer them later. In June of 69 here, almost a year after Nero had died, Vespasian learned about the death of Galba and Otho by this time and realized that he was never going to get any new orders from either of them. So he decided that he needed to wrap up the war in Judea quickly and prepare his troops for settling the strife that was raging in Rome. He took some of his troops out of Caesarea and recovered the territory that Simon ben Giora had seized during his raids in Judea and Idumea. Since Simon was now occupied inside Jerusalem, he could not leave the city to protect those territories outside the city. So Vespasian easily recovered them and took them away from his control. Vespasian continued tightening his grip on all regions outside Jerusalem, forcing all the rebels to flee to Jerusalem. Vespasian was getting everything ready for his final assault. And then he got news from Rome that Vitellius was trying to establish himself as a new emperor. And that did not please the troops in Syria or Alexandria, both of which went along with the proclamations of the troops in Caesarea to make Vespasian the next emperor of Rome. And so as soon as uh, the troops in Caesarea proclaimed him emperor, the governor of Alexandria followed suit, and then the governor of Syria declared Vespasian as emperor as well. So he's got all the troops in Egypt and Syria and Judea wanting him to become the next emperor. That's about half of the troops in the Roman Empire. And so he felt pretty sure he had a good chance to overturn Vitellius and set himself up as the next emperor. So he started making preparations to go to Rome and settle the government under his control. He turned the Judean war effort over to Titus, and we're going to talk a lot more about that in our next session when we look at the siege of Titus. But here in December, Vitellius was killed by the legions in Rome that were loyal to Vespasian. And of course, they were being orchestrated and coordinated by Vespasian's son, Domitian while Vespasian was still trying to finish up all the affairs there in Jerusalem so he could turn it over to Titus and then leave and go to Alexandria and then on to Rome. But here in December the 20th of 69, Vitellius was killed by the legions and Vespasian was officially declared to be emperor by the people of Rome. Well, I want to talk a lot more now about the conditions in Jerusalem at this time. Here in late December of 69, after Vespasian was declared the new emperor and turned everything over to Titus, meanwhile in Jerusalem, the two factions had now become three. When Simon ben Giora entered into Jerusalem to save them from John of Giscala, Eliezer ben Ananias, who controlled the inner courts of the temple, broke away from John and started snatching away as many of John's soldiers as he could. 
Eliezer fortified the walls of the inner courts so that he could defend his position against John by having the advantage of higher ground. John held the outer courts and porticos of the temple complex, while Simon held the rest of the city outside the temple area. So now there were three factions within Jerusalem, Simon, John, and Eliezer. Josephus described this as being like a wild beast gone mad and eating its own flesh. This sounds like statements in the book of Revelation about beast and that beast devouring the harlot city and burning her with fire. Very interesting connection there, very similar. All three factions used their archers to shoot arrows at each other. John used some of the sacred timbers in the temple to construct towers from which to shoot at Eliezer's forces on top of the temple. The flashpoint now was the temple, both inside and outside. Unfortunately, there were a lot of non-combatant priests and innocent worshipers who were killed in the temple during all these attacks. Josephus said that the blood of all manner of corpses formed pools in the courts of God there in the temple. This human blood in the temple was an abomination. The Romans also considered it pollution of their pagan temples for the blood of their own countrymen to be shed there. And so this was an abomination not only for the Jews, but for the Romans as well. So here in the winter of 70, now, Simon ben Giora killed Matthias the high priest. Matthias was the leader of the delegation who went to Simon just one year before this and appealed to Simon to come to Jerusalem and rescue them from John of Giscala. Some gratitude he now gives to Matthias for helping him get into his position there in Jerusalem. He kills the very guy who helped him get there. Boy, with friends like that, uh, who needs enemies, right? Here's how Josephus describes all this in The Wars, Book 4, Sections 573 and following. He says, Now it was God who turned their opinions to the worst advice, and thence they devised such a remedy to get themselves free as was worse than the disease itself. Accordingly, in order to overthrow John of Giscala, they determined to admit Simon ben Giora and earnestly desire the introduction of a second tyrant into the city, which resolution they brought to perfection and sent Matthias the high priest to beseech this Simon ben Giora to come into them, of whom they had so often been afraid. Those also that had fled from the zealots in Jerusalem, joined in this request to him, out of the desire they had of preserving their houses and their effects. And thus did Simon ben Giora get possession of Jerusalem in the third year of the war, in the month Xanthicus, which is Nisan, which is April or May of AD 69, whereupon John of Giscala, with his multitude of zealots, as being both prohibited from coming out of the temple and having lost their power in the city, for Simon and his party had plundered them of what they had, were in despair of deliverance. Accordingly, Simon would not allow Matthias, by whose means he got possession of the city, 
to go off without torment. This Matthias was the son of Bothus and was one of the high priests, one that had been very faithful to the people and in great esteem with them. He, when the multitude were distressed by the zealots, among whom John was numbered, persuaded the people to admit this Simon to come in to assist them, while he made no terms with him, nor expected anything that was evil from him. But when Simon was come in and had gotten the city under his power, he esteemed him that had advised them to admit him as his enemy, equally with the rest, as looking upon that advice as a piece of his simplicity only. So he had him then brought before him and condemned to die for being on the side of the Romans, without giving him leave to make his defense. He condemned also his three sons to die with him, for as to the fourth, he prevented him by running away to Titus before. And when he begged for this, that he might be slain before his sons, and that as a favor, on account that he had procured the gates of the city to be opened to him, he gave order that he should be slain the last of all. So here's Josephus' account of the death of Matthias with three of his sons. The fourth was able to escape and get over to Titus. Well, here in the winter of 70, when Matthias was killed by Simon, the zealots selected Phanius as the new high priest to replace Matthias. They cast lots to select this new high priest. And Josephus tells about that here in both the Antiquities and in the Wars. He says, Accordingly, the number of all the high priests from Aaron of whom we have spoken already as the first of them, until Phanius, who was made high priest during the war by the seditious, was eighty-three. Hereupon they sent for one of the pontifical tribes, which is called Eniachim, and cast lots which of it should be the high priest. By fortune the lot so fell as to demonstrate their iniquity after the plainest manner for it fell upon one whose name was Phanius, the son of Samuel, of the village Aptha. He was a man not only unworthy of the high priesthood, but that did not well know what the high priesthood was. Such a mere rustic was he. Well, it seems clear that there were no other intervening high priest between the death of Matthias and the selection of Phanius, since Josephus mentions 28 high priests as having served from Herod's reign until the end of the temple, leaving no room for any others between Matthias and Phanius. This means that Phanius was selected not long after the death of Matthias. Some even think that he was appointed before Matthias was killed, and that may be the case. Furthermore, Josephus points out that this selection of Phanius as high priest by casting lots was a lawless thing to do. They claimed that it was restoring an ancient practice of choosing high priest by lot, but that's not the case. The ancient practice was hereditary. A firstborn son of Aaron was selected as high priest, and so it was pure bogus when they claimed that it was restoring an ancient custom. It wasn't at all. It was a lawless thing to do. They were breaking the law to do that. 
and ended up profaning the noble office of high priest by selecting someone who was untrained and unqualified for the office. If you'd like to know more about this, uh, Vanderkam has a pretty good section on it uh, in his book From Joshua to Caiaphas, pages 487 to 490. Well, the Zealots chose him a new high priest, Phanius ben Samuel, who was not related to the previous Herodian appointees, nor to any of the most prestigious families of priests who had held the office since the days of Herod the Great. According to Josephus, he was the last of the high priest, and the 83rd high priest, counting from Aaron, as the first. Phanius was chosen by Lot from the priestly family of Eniachim from the village of Aphtha. He was uneducated and untrained in the temple ritual, so he had to be coached on everything he did. He's also mentioned in the Babylonian Talmud, Tractate Yoma. The men of power and the moderates, led by Simon ben Gamaliel and others, were upset at the zealots for this disenfranchisement of their priestly power, so they urged the populace to drive the zealots from the temple. This stirred up a lot more internal fighting in Jerusalem between the moderates and the zealots. John's forces raided areas of the city close to the temple that were controlled by Simon. The purpose of these raids was to weaken Simon's fortifications and steal his supplies. Any supplies they could not capture, they burned and destroyed. This resulted in the destruction of almost all of the huge storehouses of grain that the city had. This made it virtually impossible to survive the siege. If they had kept those storehouses of grain intact, they would have had enough food to survive a siege of several years. They only cut their own throats by destroying each other's food supplies. This happened in the winter of AD 70, just months before Titus began the siege of Jerusalem. Well, in the early spring of March of that year, Titus encamped outside Jerusalem but did not raise the siege yet. Evidently, he was advised by his advisors not to raise the siege until after Passover, until all those Jewish pilgrims and worshipers had come to the feast. That would make the siege conditions much worse for them because they would not have the food to supply all those people who came at Passover time. And so that would make it easier for them to take the city. And so that was good advice, and he followed that advice. Titus had amassed a force of about 80,000 soldiers by this time, four legions. His soldiers built three camps around the perimeter of Jerusalem. Suddenly it began to dawn on the zealots inside the city just how big a force they were up against. The three factions ceased hostilities for the moment, and formed a temporary alliance to coordinate their attack on the Romans. They had frittered the winter away when they could have been preparing for the siege. They believed that they were never going to have a siege. They thought conditions in Rome were so bad that the Roman forces would withdraw from Judea, but that didn't happen. Just the reverse happened. Even more Roman forces came now to siege Jerusalem, and they were not prepared. 
They had burned each other's food supplies and left the city in a condition that was ill-prepared for a survival of a siege. Well, they did the best they could, though, with that unification after the siege began, and that unification gave them some limited success against the Romans, who were somewhat preoccupied with building their camps and preparing their siege equipment. The combined forces of the Zealots enabled them to make several sorties or sallies outside the city and do some damage to the Roman forces. Titus did not enclose Jerusalem with a siege wall yet. He waited until Passover so that the maximum number of Jewish pilgrims and refugees could get inside the city before he bottled them up. The more people inside, the greater the need for food and supplies, and the quicker they would reach desperation. Titus did everything right, and the Zealots did everything wrong. Then came Passover. Three factions then were reduced to two. Eliezer ben Ananias, at least according to Hegesippus and Yosipon, allowed worshipers into the temple during Passover. So the Sicarii, under the command of John of Giscala, slipped into the temple with the worshipers and killed some of Eliezer's men. Eliezer and some of his soldiers then fled to the subterranean vaults underneath the temple or escaped out of Jerusalem through those tunnels underneath the temple. And Yosipon says that Eliezer ben Ananias somehow escaped from Jerusalem at this time and went to Masada. Here's what Yosipon says about it. Titus heard that a large army of Jews had assembled at Masada, and with them Eleazar ben Anani, who had been in Jerusalem. He had escaped from Jerusalem during the fighting and had gone to Masada. Therefore, many of the Jews gathered around him. When Titus heard that the Jews had rallied to Eleazar ben Anani, he sent there the Roman commander Silva with a strong and heavy force from the Roman horde. And that's Yosipon chapter 89. Both Yosipon in chapters 82 and 89 and Hegesippus in chapter 5, section 53, place Eleazar ben Ananias in Masada after this implying that Eliezer escaped capture by John and somehow got out of the city and fled to Masada. The rest of Eliezer's men then merged with John's forces, thus giving John total control of the whole temple complex, including the inner and outer courts. The three Zealot factions then were reduced to only two, Simon ben Giora and John of Giscala. These two factions, John versus Simon, returned to fighting each other for supremacy until Titus began the siege. Simon had a fighting force of about 10,000, while John's was only 6,000. But Josephus says that some Eliezer was allowed by John to retain command of 2,400 soldiers that had formerly been under Eliezer ben Ananias. Perhaps the best way to reconcile this with Yosipon and Hegesippus would be to suppose that either, number one, one of Eleazar's commanders had the same name, Eleazar, or number two, 
Josephus mistakenly assumed it was the same Eliezer ben Ananias. Or, number three, the text of Wars, Book 5, Section 250, has been corrupted or mistranslated. Simon held the upper city and part of the lower city. John held the temple complex and the eastern section of the lower city. Well, I want to note here about Eliezer ben Ananias that it's extremely interesting to me that Hegesippus keeps Eleazar ben Ananias in control of the temple all the way through the war down to this very time when John of Giscala was finally able to gain control of it. The next and final time that Eliezer is mentioned by Hegesippus is when Eliezer gives his final speech to the 960 people on Masada the night before the Romans broke through. Hegesippus does not tell us how Eliezer escaped from Jerusalem and fled to Masada, nor is there any mention of Eliezer being killed or captured in Jerusalem. The only other thing we hear about him after his troops were defeated by John of Giscala is that he is now on Masada, leading the remaining zealots in their futile defense of this final stronghold. Hegesippus evidently believed that Eliezer somehow escaped Jerusalem with his family and friends and fled to Masada. There is a hint in Hegesippus 2 verse 10 that Eliezer might have sent his family to Masada at the beginning of the war, where they remained to the very end. Hegesippus says, The instigators of war, and of course the prime one is Eliezer himself, captured Masada and stationed their own men. Hegesippus 2, verse 10. Since Eliezer had been the Sagon of the temple and would have known about all the secret underground passages, it is easy to explain how he might have been able to escape Jerusalem through one of those tunnels underground and flee to Masada where his family had been safely stationed out of harm's way Furthermore, this narrative of Hegesippus is supported by an inscription on a piece of pottery that was found on top of Masada, which reads, Belonging to Akavia, son of Ananias, high priest. Now, of course, this is mentioned in Vanderkam on pages 460 through 463, where he cites Nave's book, the Aramaic and Hebrew Astraka and Jar inscriptions, page 37, plate 30. The owner of this pottery vessel was an otherwise unknown son of Ananias ben Nadibus and brother of Eliezer ben Ananias. This means that some of Eliezer's family could have been on Masada at the time it was destroyed by the Romans in AD 73. It does not stretch credulity at all to suggest that Akavia may have come there with the rest of Ananias' family, including the family of Eleazar, when he left Jerusalem, either at the beginning or near the end of the war. This pottery inscription certainly supports the accounts of Yosipon and Hegesippus. Moreover, in Karsten Thede's book on the Dead Sea Scrolls, he mentions three legal documents that were dated before the fall of Masada. 
respectively dated 56 A.D., 64 A.D., and 71 A.D. These three legal documents were found at Murabaat Cave 4, a promissory note, a marriage contract, and a divorce certificate, classified as Murabaat 18, 19, and 20, respectively. All three documents were in Aramaic. Notice in the quote, which is copied below, that the certificate of divorce dating itself in AD 71 was created at Masada and witnessed by three individuals resident there. Note the name of that third witness. His name was Eliezer ben Hanana or Ananias. Here's the quote. The divorce certificate can be dated to the month of October in the sixth year of Masada, which would be A.D. 71. It is signed by the husband, Joseph, son of Naksan, who dismisses and expels his wife, Miriam, daughter of Jonathan, according to Jewish law, and it is signed by three witnesses, Eliezer, son of Malka, Joseph, son of Malka, and Eliezer, son of Hanana, or Ananias. The former husband declares he does it of his own free will and pays his ex-wife in coins for all loss of her own property. As from now on, Joseph declares, Miriam is free to marry any Jewish man she likes. The lawyer who kept what would have been his filing cabinet copy of the original given to Miriam, with a further copy for Joseph, evidently came to Masada from a place where he had been used to dating his documents in Roman terms. Both the promissory note and the marriage contract were dated to the relevant years of Emperor Nero's reign. The note is dated to the second year of Nero, which would be October 56. And the contract, marriage contract, is dated 7th of Adar, in the eleventh year of Nero. This cannot be the eleventh year of Masada, since the fortress only lasted eight years under Zealot rule until the Romans took it, and it has therefore been assumed that the damaged part of the manuscript mentioned Nero. Hence the date would be February or March of AD 64. All three documents seem to be valuable evidence for a continuation of Jewish civil and religious law under the Roman occupation of Palestine. The marriage contract explicitly refers to a wedding according to the law of Moses, and it had taken place in Herodona, the hometown of the husband, Judah, son of Joe, son of Manasseh, the Elishabite, which was some five kilometers southeast of Jerusalem. Well, that's what Karsten Theed had to say about this in his book entitled The Dead Sea Scrolls and the Jewish Origins of Christianity. If this is the infamous Eliezer ben Ananias that Karsten Theed uh, mentions here in this divorce contract, then this could be the supportive evidence we have been looking for to solve the mystery about what happened to Eliezer ben Ananias. Josephus left us confused about it. 
but Yosipon and Hegesippus fill in some of the missing pieces. Both Yosipon and Hegesippus put Eliezer ben Ananias on Masada in AD 70. This divorce certificate should be a real bombshell if it is indeed Eliezer ben Ananias. It would also suggest that the text of Josephus' account of the wars has either been corrupted or mistranslated, and that Yosipon and Hegesippus have the more reliable information, at least in regard to what happened to Eliezer ben Ananias, the originator of the war, according to Hegesippus. There is a chart, which is with this outline here, which shows how these four writers, Josephus, Yosipon, Hegesippus, and Tacitus, dealt with the various Eliezers that are mentioned in their writings. And you'll look at that chart and you'll see uh, what I'm saying here about there being a lot of discrepancies between Josephus and the other accounts. And we have to explain those discrepancies somehow. And I think the evidence that we've seen here from the Dead Sea Scrolls and the pottery inscription uh, will help us out. Well, that's all we can say about the Eliezer mystery at this point. We'll probably discover some more about that later, and I'll share that with you as I do more research on it. Let's talk a little bit about the two witnesses that are mentioned in Revelation chapter 11, verse 3. This has always been a a favorite question for people to ask. When I'm at seminars, uh, it comes up almost every time in the Q&A sessions, and it comes up a lot as well by email. Uh, A lot of people have asked that question. So I've tried to fit the two witnesses into the historical narrative wherever I think they should uh, belong, and I believe they belong right here in April of AD 70, here at Passover time. And here's the reason why I say this. The three and a half years after the outbreak of the war, from AD 66 to 70, would have been the most opportune time for the two witnesses to have appeared in Jerusalem and give their final testimony after the church and its leaders, such as Paul and Peter, had been killed. Keep in mind that these two witnesses were to prophesy and give their testimony for a period of 1260 days, which would be three and a half years. Since Josephus had already left for Galilee at this time, December of 66, he was not inside Jerusalem to hear their testimony and therefore could not record it. But his allusion to more signs and omens occurring at this time in Wars Book 2, Sections 649 and 50, could easily be a veiled reference to the kinds of signs that the two witnesses were performing in Jerusalem. Revelation 11, verses 6 through 13, mentions these particular signs that accompanied their prophesying and testimony. Number one, power to shut up the sky so rain will not fall during the days of their prophesying. Number two, power over the waters to turn them into blood like Moses did in Egypt. Number three, strike the land with plagues, like Moses did in Egypt. Number four, at the time of their ascension, there was a great earthquake. And number five, a tenth of the city fell 
and 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake. In view of the fact that Revelation mentions their corpses laying unburied in the street of the great city, which is Jerusalem, for three and a half days, it seems that this event must have occurred after the revolt began and after the zealots had control of the city. The Edomians came into Jerusalem in AD 68 and helped eliminate the moderate leaders and their forces. From that time forward, the three zealot factions were in control. Their civil strife destroyed all of their food supplies and killed a lot of each other's forces. There were simply too many corpses to bury, so they threw them over the wall into the valley of Hinnom or let them pile up in the city, both in the houses and eventually out in the street. This story of the two witnesses sounds like it might have happened after the zealots were in control. The moderates would not have left their corpses unburied in the streets of Jerusalem for three days, but the zealots would have done that, especially John's or Simon's forces. Based on this reasoning, it would seem that the two witnesses were Moses and Elijah and that they appeared back in the flesh inside Jerusalem to read the final divorce contract to the Jews and give them their final warning and chance to repent before they were destroyed. It is almost like Moses going into Pharaoh that final time just before the death angel passed over to kill the firstborn of Egypt. Rather than heed the message, the zealots killed the messengers, and then their real troubles began to multiply out of control. Titus arrived on the scene and began the siege. According to Yosipon, chapter 73, written about the horrible conditions inside Jerusalem just before Titus raised the siege in the spring of AD 70, the writer of Yosipon bemoans how the city and temple were so polluted with dead corpses laying everywhere unburied. He calls upon Moses, Aaron, Joshua, David, and Elisha to awake out of Sheol and intervene on behalf of the Jewish people. If Moses and Elijah did come to Jerusalem at this time, it would not have been to help the zealots but to warn them to repent. So it seems to me that sometime during the final two years of the revolt, A.D. 68, 69, or 70, when the zealots were killing each other in the streets of Jerusalem and leaving the corpses unburied, would have been the most likely time for the two witnesses to appear and give their final warning and then be killed. Now, that seems to be the most logical uh, explanation for the time of the two witnesses. I'm open for a better solution, though. If you can find a better time out of Josephus or Yosipon or Hegesippus for the uh, arrival of these two witnesses in Jerusalem, then I'm all ears. I would love to hear it. Be sure to share it with me if you have a better solution 
that fits the text of Revelation chapter 11. Well, that's all we need to cover for this session. That certainly gave us an overall glimpse at the situation in Judea and Jerusalem between the death of Nero and the proclamation of Vespasian as the new emperor, almost a year and a half later. The Jews not only failed to strengthen their defenses and organize their forces under a central command structure like they should have, but instead drastically weakened their defenses and fragmented their forces into rival factions that were barely able to work together when the siege began. Next time, we're probably going to start looking at the actual siege of Jerusalem. That will be very interesting for us. I'm going to try to bring in some information about the various engines and weaponry and artillery that the Romans used. Don West was talking to me this week about that, and he found a book at Barnes & Noble that uh, described all those weapons that the Romans used to hurl spears and arrows and rocks at the uh, Jewish people inside the city. One of those engines that they used, which hurled a spear or darts, uh, was called a scorpion. And it's interesting that the word scorpion is used three times in the book of Revelation, chapter 9, one of which at least seems to be describing those weapons that the Romans or the Jews themselves were using to uh, fight zealots or to fight the Romans with. And so we'll look at that next time as a part of our discussion. That's going to wrap it up for this session. Thanks so much for listening. This has been Then and Now with Ed Stevens. We would love to hear from you. Send your email to preterist1 at preterist.org. Our website has many great articles, books, and audio video resources. The address is www.preterist.org. This teaching ministry depends on your donations, and you share in all the good fruit that we produce. To make a donation or support monthly, simply go to our website, www.preterist.org, or call us at 814-368-6578. Join us again next time for Then and Now, where we study the past to shape a better future.